Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nowen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nowen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Nowen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week, we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry, or perhaps even a recording of Henry himself. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to reach our spiritually thirsty world with Henry's writings, his encouragement, and of course, his reminder that each of us is a beloved child of God. And my guest today is Robert Jonas. He's best known as Jonas, by the way. He was a good friend of Henry's and author of three books. He is a psychotherapist. He's also somebody who leads spiritual retreats. He does land conservation work. He writes articles, and he has a unique way of bringing together a deep understanding of Buddhism and Christianity. That's been part of his life work. I want you to meet Robert. He's a good friend and someone who uh, I cherish the way he knew Henry because he helped me know Henry through his friendship. Oh, Jonas, I'm delighted to have a chance to chat with you because we've known each other for many years. You were a person who, in essence helped me uh, discover who Henry Nowen was. I came to visit you when I was doing a documentary on him. And yeah. you were a friend and you were somebody who whose book had actually been most helpful to me. At the time, you had written a book called Henry Nowen, Writing Selected with an introduction by Robert A. Jonas. And I had loved your introduction. I found it to be the one that actually guided me through the documentary. There was kind of the essence of Henry there, and you really understood him. So I wanted to meet you in person. And then I recall coming to you in Boston, and that was kind of the beginning of our friendship. Um, Tell me just a little bit about that friendship that you had with Henry Nowen. I uh, met Henry uh, and the the years start to dissolve in my mind, but I think it was 1982 or 83. I was uh, in graduate school getting a doctorate in psychology at Harvard, and I heard about um, Henry um, through some friends who said, oh, you must hear this guy. He's over at Harvard Divinity School giving talks. So um, at that time, I had just uh, been through the final stages of a painful divorce, and uh, met Margaret, who was also a graduate student, uh, Margaret Bullitt Jonas, and she was doing her dissertation in uh, comparative literature, in Russian literature. So, and um, so we went together um, with Margaret's mother, who was a Buddhist teacher. So we sat in the front row at St. Paul's Church in Harvard Square, and Henry Gate was giving a talk, and. Um, there with us was another Buddhist teacher. Um, so there were the four of us who were wavering between staying Christian or becoming Buddhist. And so it was a critical moment for me. Um, and Henry got up, there were 300 people or so, and he started talking about Jesus in a most unusual way. I, he was dressed like a Harvard professor, <clears throat> not a, a Roman Catholic priest. And um, he was able to weave together Christian experience and a little bit of Zen and a little bit of uh, loving Jesus in a way that felt a little bit for me like Oral Roberts from the 1950s or (laughs) Billy Graham, but more sophisticated, more cosmopolitan. And uh, I immediately said, wow, I got to 
this is incredible. I got to meet this guy. And um, so I I should mention that it was unusual because I was being trained in psychoanalytic psychology and reading Freud that uh, religion was, you know, a projection from our childhood experience of our parents and all that. Um, So it was quite an astonishing uh, experience for me. So I went up to him after he talked. I was the first person in line. There was a long line, and I said, wow, this is incredible. Can we have lunch? And Henry's response immediately was, well, I don't know, but let's have – oh, I said, would you be my spiritual director? It was even more brazen. And he said, well, I don't know, but let's have lunch. So we had lunch in Harvard Square, and then – we became friends for the rest of his life. Oh, that is so cool. Now, I know I'm catching you at a moment where I, I you know, you're a retired psychotherapist. You lead spiritual yeah. retreats. You do land conservation work. But clearly, Henry had a very formative part of that spiritual life in you. So tell me a little bit more about that friendship and how you influenced each other. Yeah, sure. Um, so... Uh, I was just in clinical training um, at Harvard, and um, then I was, I think at that time in 1983-84, I was beginning an internship at Rentham State School working with handicapped people, and that was going to be my clinical internship for my doctorate to become a a licensed clinical psychologist. And so um, Henry was just beginning to be interested in L'Arche. He had visited Trolley in France, um, the basic large community, the foundational community, and and so uh, our our conversations included talk about um, psychology, spirituality, uh, handicapped people, marginalized people. Uh, we had a lot of common uh, views of reality, and we both had a devotional life. Um, but the thing is, we we were kind of I don't know how to describe it. We we were trying to figure out who we were to each other. Uh, we knew we liked each other immediately, but uh, uh, I started asking Henry questions about his parents. What was his relationship with his father? What was his relationship with his mother? And, of course, this is part of my psychoanalytic training. Um, where did Jesus come in there? Um, how did he integrate his early childhood experience with him meeting Jesus? Um, and that interested me from my own life because I grew up in an alcoholic home in northern Wisconsin. My parents ran a bar, and I was I witnessed domestic violence. Um, my parents uh, fighting, beating each other up. My mother having uh, missing teeth and black eye. And um, but at the same time, I my grandparents introduced me to Jesus uh, in the Lutheran Church. So I had these two experiences of trauma, and that Jesus was an eternal presence, and Henry understood that. Um, but we didn't quite know how to do this uh, or what this was, what our friendship was all about. So for a while, he, for several session, he, sessions, he asked me to be his therapist. <clears throat> and we tried that out, um, and he actually paid me. Um, and I thought, wow, this is wonderful. Henry's so famous, and I'm his spiritual director. You know, I was immature, and uh, it was kind of an ego thing for me. Um, but I soon discovered that wasn't working because he, he didn't take any of my suggestions and he was not a good listener. And, um, I got frustrated and, and I think he got frustrated too. So we decided, well, that's, that doesn't work. So we, uh, split apart for a while, I don't know, six months or a year. And then, um, 
we came back together and had lunch again and decided why don't we why don't we call this friendship why don't we be friends <laughs> so at that point he was no longer my spiritual director and i was no longer his therapist um so we had started out with a kind of professional mindset that we had to be professional with each other and that gradually dissolved and then i visited him at trolley and then when he went to harvard i was part of that um send-off committee um not physically present when every when he left Cambridge, but um, we we called each other. He talked to me about leaving for Toronto from Cambridge, and um, and then we you know over the years we just met um, probably once a year. I went to Trolley. I mean, I went to Toronto, um, stayed in the uh, retreat center there, and. Um, and then and he visited us occasionally when he came to Cambridge. What was it like having Henry as a friend? Was he difficult? I mean, I I didn't always hear everybody saying he was the easiest person to be a friend with. I mean, there was lots of issues. And tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I agree with all that's been said in that direction. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Um, he could be so incredibly present and listening, and um, I really needed his basic message that he repeated in so many different ways that we are the beloved and what is said of Jesus is said of you so that the experience Jesus had of feeling uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit and realizing um, that the scent, the very core of his life was God's belovedness in him, that I can have that experience. So that, that it was a, very different from my Lutheran upbringing where Jesus is sort of uh, a beloved historical figure, but in the past, and we can sort of call on him. But Henry's message was, "No, he's he's rooted in your life right now, moment to moment." So that that was an incredible message, and he could listen to me in my devotional life with great depth and understanding and guidance, and he could listen to me talk about um, the psychodynamic. Um, aspects of both of our lives. Uh, for example, he could share with me things like uh, he would visit his father and they would go to a and b in the Schwarzwalde every year, I think, or most years. And, um, and But Henry said, when I would go into my father's bedroom, I would see all my published books in the corner stacked and unread. So I knew there there was some pain there that he really never talked about very much. So we had that kind of very personal sharing. Um, but on the other hand, he could be very demanding um, in terms of his attention. He could be quite narcissistic. And at any moment, it would be all about him. And um, so f uh, just one example that he talks about in the sabbatical journey uh, book, I um, was going to visit him in Trolley, um, and this would be 1985, 80, early 86, I think. Um, and we made a plan that I would come and visit him, and he'd be staying in Trolley in France. And, and, but I was just um, going through a very dramatic change in my life, deciding whether I want to be married again or not, and marry Margaret. And, and so kind of at the last minute, instead of going to see him in September, I told him in August that I, I, I couldn't come because Margaret and I were going to get married and, and how wonderful that was and so on and so forth. He, he, he was not as excited as I thought he would be. Um, <laughs> he was actually upset that I was not going to come and visit him. 
and um, I, I I learned later that there, therefore he start, he stopped calling me for a while, and um, he was very hurt that I did not come to visit him, even though obviously it was extremely important for me in my life and life changing to become married. So um, I didn't learn that he was actually upset as much as he was until I read his book, Sabbatical Journey, where he mentions it, um, that, um, you know, how upset he was. So that was kind of a surprise to read about that in a book later. (laughs) (laughs) It's a funny thing. As I got to know Henry through his friends and his family, his colleagues, I, I discovered this incredible longing for friendship and intimacy and friendship and and commitment to him, which I thought was was really he captured in some ways what we all feel. Uh, we we long for people to to make us, in a sense, uh, give us back our worth. And he his understanding of that actually is that which ultimately gives us tremendous revelations of how he needed to put God in that place. Um, Henry's yeah. Henry's life journey is just so so life-giving because he's incredibly honest with his neediness and uh and we see ourselves <laughs> sometimes there i mean we just can't help but see it <laughs> yeah that's right it's so funny too because he one of his uh, central messages to people was that um god loves us unconditionally no conditions whatsoever and but when we expect unconditional love from others from people we'll always be disappointed he said we'll get glimpse of unconditional love that are real and important, but we won't get the the full Monty, if you will. <laughs> uh, that can that can only come from God. Yeah. And but at the same time, he couldn't quite live that message. Now you you've written a couple of books that that are about Henry. You did Essential Henry Now with Shambhala Press, and yes. there's a lovely quote in this: uh, "We always have a choice to live the moment." as a cause of resentment or a cause for joy. That's Henry Nouwen's quote. And it strikes me as an incredible line as we look at where we are today with the pandemic. We always have a choice to live the moment as a cause of resentment or as a cause for joy. How are you doing yes. with the pandemic, you and, and Margaret right now? What's happening in your lives? And, and what from Henry have you been able to draw that's of value? Yeah, thank you. Um, He's changed me so dramatically that I, I almost can't separate myself from from Henry, from his his presence and his message. Um, so, in in that way, it's a difficult question. For example, after I wrote the first book about Henry in in the I think 1996 with Orvis Press, I got so into his world. Uh, I really wanted to take in that message um, that that he brought to us. That um, and then I started leading retreats based on Henry now and all over the country really and and at a certain at a certain point it happened that I had to separate from him I I didn't know I had to find my own spiritual life so um, I stopped leading retreats on him for a while and I was on the Henry now on board um, I did that but I um, I I felt that I my exploration was more interspiritual uh, than Henry's. I, I had a foot in the Buddhist world um, doing Buddhist meditation. So so uh, what's happening now is Henry supported me to start the Empty Bell Retreat Center in Watertown, Cambridge area in Massachusetts in, in 1994. I started doing retreats, contemplative Christian retreats that were friendly to Buddhism back then in 1994. 
Then um, we moved in 2004. I built another empty bell in um, uh, western Massachusetts in Northampton. And three years ago, we moved to a different part of Northampton. I built another empty bell. It looks like a Zen retreat center. It's attached to our house. And now during the pandemic, um, I am leading Zoom, Zoom meditation retreats um, uh, on Sunday mornings. And it, these have been incredibly helpful for me. Um, so I host about 12 or 15 people in each group. Sunday mornings are Christians who have gone east to Buddhism and Hinduism and want to come back and integrate these things. Um, Tuesday evenings are just um, people in our community and our neighbors. Um, that's very interspiritual. So they're Jews and Buddhists and Christians and UU and UCC and all kinds of folks. And then on Wednesday morning is anybody here in the what's called the Pioneer Valley. So the meeting with people by Zoom is been incredibly rewarding and just looking at people's faces um on the zoom screens um i can just i just learned to i love love them really and in in all these groups we're getting to that place where we just feel each other's presence so keenly that we can say i love you to each other and and really live that life of love together even across disciplines even for the Buddhists in the group, <laughs> who don't use the word, they don't use the word love very much. You know, Buddhists tend to use the word compassion. But what I always say to them is um, that Jesus was not afraid to say, I love you, or do you love me? Um, I'm not sure that Buddha ever asked, do you love me? It's a different, um, Buddhism is a different kind of spirituality, but what it does do that I haven't found very much in Christian life and in teachers is when you talk about making a choice between regret and what was the other word you used resentment and but, or a cause um, for joy that was the end of the quote yeah okay <laughs> cause for so so what i learned from the buddhists is that it really is moment to moment like right now as you and i are talking together i i feel an openness in my heart to what is happening right now not not you the karen i used to know or the jo- the jonas that i used to know or want to know or pretend i am or or any of that. It's what is, what is actually happening in the moment. The open, openness to raw experience. That's something I got from Buddhism that I never was taught by any of my Christian teachers. It was more, my Christian life was more moral and hopeful and very, you know, positive and love. And But there was a lack, what was lacking about it, it for me is a fierceness of of facing into reality just as it is. That's powerful. So that's that's what I'm doing, trying to do right now in this pandemic and helping others do that too. I think that's going to be very valuable to our audience right now, to be quite honest with you. Everybody has different ways of handling what's going on, but it is, it's obviously this amazing, life-changing, uh, path-changing moment for all of us. So finding yeah. the way through it and um, living in the moment is, is quite quite important I think I got a treat just a couple of weeks ago on the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day actually on the Sunday before that at the National Cathedral in Washington your lovely wife Margaret Mm. Bullitt Jonas was the speaker and it was beautiful I really enjoyed it tell me a little bit about the journey the two of you have had because in essence, you have really uh, gotten involved in doing some important work right now that deals with the environment, that deals with creation. I'd love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, sure. Thanks. 
So, yeah, Margaret and I are both involved in environmental stuff. Her from a more Christian spiritual angle that uh, we are that God creates creation to be loved just as we are created to be loved and to love each other. So she puts creation right in the center of uh, of the, the uh, liturgies and the, and even changing a, here and there some language, creeds, whatever it takes to get. Um, nature and creation more in the center of our spiritual lives. And I'm doing the same thing. Um, you know, one more practical path I've taken is um, I, I, I have been a board chair of a land trust here in Western Massachusetts. And so we, we actually uh, do the financial and economic and legal work to set aside tracts of land so that nothing can ever be built on those tracts of land. We save here in Western Massachusetts, about 1,200 acres a year um, set aside legally in perpetuity so that they can never be um, developed. Mm -hmm. And those are places where now we have at the Kestrel Land Trust uh, website, for example, we have about 12 maps of uh, areas to hike around here where you can take an hour, two-hour hike um, through the woods, through uh, you know the, the wetlands and the mountains, and um, it's extremely satisfying work. But, but I, I have to add that when you do environmental work, there's been a great split between environmental work and spirituality over the last couple centuries. And it goes back to Christians being opposed to evolution and things and science. Um, so now uh, Margaret and I are both part of conversations trying to say that science, science is a beautiful creative, brilliant um, uh, creation <laughs> creation of uh, the human mind, the human heart. And so one can be deeply spiritual and be a scientist at the same time. So climate change is real. Evolution is real. A reality is real, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, and, and we can have a deep, inspiring, radiant um, Christian life simultaneously. These two you know, it's not two. It's there's this saying in mystical Christianity: not not two, not one. It's both. There's a oneness in our lives with creation and each other, and there's also this this uh, uh, differentiation is beautiful. Um, seeing things as they actually are, separate from us. So right now, I'm I've been working on a book on the Holy Trinity for many many years, and I'm getting it's getting close now. And what what I'm doing there is saying that the the Trinity, the model of three and one, is actually um, a uh, the dynamics of our awareness, our awareness with each other, and our, our aware, awareness in nature. Um, so that's taking a lot of my time right now, and I hope to finish this year. Mm. Um, that sounds so. The, you know, yeah. So wonderful. Margaret and I are always having these great discussions. Mm. One last thing I want to add about my relationship with this Margaret: when I met Margaret, I, and we were both graduate students and facing our dissertations, which you know is a terrible experience. <laughs> um, and and we um, we had we arranged for a dinner at her her house, and so. I was driving toward her house, and I had this old rickety Dodge Dart, and it it stopped operating about a mile from her house. So she had to come and pick me up. And so her first thought was, oh, who is this guy? He can't even afford a car. And we get into her house, um, which she owned at that time. She was fortunate. Um, and um, she she burned the the fish that she was cooking for me. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, she can't cook. And then um, we started talking, and the first things we 
we talked about, we bypassed our doubts. We started talking about God and about life and death. And um, I started to cry. I, I had I had not experienced such a like a openness of love. And uh, and she and she said, "Well, what's wrong?" And I said, "Nothing's wrong. I'm happy." <laughs> <laughs> and that that was our love experience right away in 1982. And then when we got married, Henry um, said at our reception, he said, there's so much love in these two people separately. There's going to be a lot more love for the world when they get together, when they get married. That was a beautiful thing for him to share. What a lovely so. prediction that was. My goodness. That's... So he's really been part <laughs> of your life through even through this transition, obviously. Uh, um I, you know, I, I love hearing that love story. That really moves my heart. The other <clears> thing that I enjoy so much about you, Jonas, is you're so creative. <clears throat> I mean, you just, you don't put boundaries around, I'm just a psychotherapist or I'm a, just a writer and you've written some wonderful books. But <clears throat> you have this enjoyment of nature, this enjoyment of beauty, this enjoyment of music. Tell us a little bit <clears throat> about that. Let's let's start with the music. What you play an instrument, and you play it wonderfully, and in fact, you have three albums out, I believe. What? Tell us a bit about what you play and what you mm. gain from that experience. Yeah, thanks. I, um, um, in, I, was, I was a psychotherapist and doing organizational development in the 80s after I graduated from, after I finished my dissertation, and after I worked at Rentham State School. And I was one a lot of my clients in psychotherapy had spiritual lives and I began to realize more and more that that's where I wanted my focus to be not so much on psychotherapy but what do we what do we find when we see through the boundaries of the ego we find divinity we find the divine and I wanted to explore that so uh, I talked with Henry a lot about it and he encouraged me to get a postdoc master so I went to Weston Jesuit School of Theology in Cambridge uh, and got a master's, and it, it to integrate Buddhism, Christianity, and psychotherapy. And my thesis was on those three. I, I think I called it a healing, a, a perfect storm of healing, psychotherapy, <laughs> Buddhism, and Christianity. And and while I was in a seminar on Thomas Merton, the teaching fellow David Duncavage stood up, and he played this inc- a bamboo flute that he had learned to make and to play in Japan. He was getting a doctorate on Buddhist-Christian dialogue at Harvard, at the Divinity School. And I heard this instrument blowing through the bamboo, and I realized, this is my instrument. I have to learn how to play this. So I started taking lessons with him, and then he introduced me to Yoshio Kurahashi, his teacher in Kyoto. Uh, I started bringing uh, Yoshio to Cambridge, uh, to the Empty Bell, and uh, the Empty Bell became the place to learn this instrument um, for anybody living in the Boston area. And it, the instrument's called a shakuhachi. And if if anybody's interested in hearing this, if you go to iTunes, one of my albums is on iTunes, it's called Blowing Bamboo. And you just type in Blowing Bamboo, and you'll see several different uh, albums, but the one you're looking for is Robert A. Jonas. Um, so I, that instrument, when Buddhists, when monks played that instrument for many centuries, their spiritual practice was to become Buddha in one sound, in Japanese, Ichianju Butsu. Um, so when I played it as a Christian, and I've been playing, I, I play it now, is um, 
to become Christ in one sound, like St. Paul saying, you know, now not I, but Christ in me. It means letting go of my ego self, my self-referencing thoughts of um, who I think I am, who I want to be, who I would prefer to be, letting go of all those ideas of who I am and letting this, uh, the clarity and the, in a kind of emptiness, the kenosis of Christ come through every note. So that's what I do. When I lead retreats, I always play the shakuhachi. So anyway, I'm just trying to, you know, integrate my Christian life. That's my whole life is about Christ and um, the best way I can. And so I, I integrate writing and video and music and, um, and friendship um, and community building um, or community co-creating. This might be a better way to say it. Wow, I, I'm so glad to introduce audiences to you, Jonas. I, mm. You have been a, a friend, an inspiration, uh, and and I I really love the fact that you knew Henry so well, uh, that you mm. were a friend, and, and at the same time probably somebody who could be very, very honest with him where he needed honesty. Um, yeah. But you have you have a rich tradition that you bring when people go to the uh, the show notes for this particular podcast. I want to list the books you've written, and I'm sure there's going to be people who would like to get in on that Zoom um, count. Not so much counseling, but really, uh, really your your the way you're you're ministering to people right now, where they are in the midst of this sense of everything's changing and it's and it is frightening for people it is un, uncertain times and many are facing losses and just oh, need yeah. somebody to come alongside of them and be with them through mm-hmm. that and we're so grateful we hear almost on a almost on a daily basis we hear from people who say what henry's saying to us right now or what henry's saying into my life right now is exactly what i need and it brings yeah. a calm to me and i i'm i'm grateful that we can can share Henry, you know, right across yeah. the world. I, it, it's it's exciting. I have to say about Zoom that um, I, I really what's best is um, anybody who would like to join the Zoom commu- uh, community um, that I'm uh, hosting. Um, that it's really essential. It's it's it, it's the Christian contemplative tradition. It's the moment to moment experience um, that is you know informed by by Buddhism, but but it's always been there back to the early centuries after Christ. So many. So many people now have to sequester and be alone, and we're not used to it. But look at all the the beautiful saints that have chosen solitude. They knew how to handle it, and whether they were living in urban settings or in the desert. Um, Robert Ellsberg now has a series out. I think it's on YouTube, but also through his uh, Orbis uh, Books uh, website, where he's um, uh, reviewing a lot of Christian saints who have lived in isolation on purpose, and, you know, pointing out how we can learn from them. I've loved his book, All Saints. It's one of my favorites. I just really enjoy it. In fact, he has a saint for every single day. And yeah. some of them aren't people that you would think you'd call saints, but Robert has a very beautiful, broad view of that, and it has really been a treat to uh, yes. pick that book up and go to the day and 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 study a life. And, and, and actually, I think it would be a, a great a great thing to use right now. I'm glad to hear you say that it's about the contemplative Christianity because that's very significant right now. People are looking for it. In the midst of being alone, it's another step to find peace in that aloneness yes. and to connect with God in, yes. in a deeper way. So I'm, I'm delighted to hear that that's what's happening 
right now in terms of how you yeah. are Zoom meeting with people. And that That's lovely. Robert. Yes, thank you. And by the way, I just have to say that you, you are the, the best interviewer that I've ever experienced. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so kind of you to say. Uh, you know, it's always fun to, to interview a friend because you want to just go to the corners of their lives and things that you have been inspired by and things you want to bring out. And it's really been a delight to, to talk with you. And I think mm. in the midst of it, what is really important, and perhaps you might want to have a last word on this, is we are in a time like no other for all the world, a time like no other. But what is the best you can offer into people's lives right now that you know will be life-giving? Well, I think, thank you. I I don't know. You know, I'm discovering myself. Um, I'm discovering the importance of friends and family in a way that I hadn't experienced before. Um, And uh, the preciousness of life of each moment, that this doesn't have to be so, but it is, and uh, Henry sometimes used that phrase actually. So when I when I am able to walk outside, oh my God, a tree, a, a cloud, a flower, the, enjoying the preciousness, the contingency, the this doesn't have to be so, but it is. Um, it's it's such a wonderful experience, um, and and to oh I know, also to work with things like. Um, you know, even living with Margaret, I, I to- we totally love each other after 35 years of marriage. But we're watching very close as, closely now, like never before, where we get irritated with each other and where we get annoyed or, or um, angry or any, any experience where um, the, the openness and acceptance and inner peace um, begins to be affected is to say is to inquire right into that moment and either talk to each other or just say frankly i need some time alone so yesterday for example i just went out i spent the whole day somewhere else and it it just became apparent that there was a little irritation in the air so i disappeared and when i came back it was wonderful to reemerge in the in the family you know I bet there's a lot of people that are going to take that little piece of advice the reality is you're forced into being together far more than you're used to yes. I mean, you know and and in the midst of that finding the ways to undo the moments that are really irritating or yeah. annoying or and I, frustrating and I, and I would say don't don't feel bad or reject quote unquote negative feelings like irritation annoyance fear anger like explore them. This is what the contemplative life is all about, is that inside the fear is a love greater than you ever imagined. Inside the irritation, there, there's, a, there's the, I use this metaphor in your documentary about sitting at the edge of the Grand Canyon. There's the vastness of God's love is available, that is, is, is bigger than, you know, more vast than any particular feeling we're having in the moment. Feelings are not the end story. The end story is the vastness of God's boundless love. That's beautiful, Robert. That is just beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Jonas. Mm. <laughs> I will thank you <laughs> as the name that I should call you. Thank you for this. No, that's great. That's <laughs> great. I love it. Thank and, you, Karen. Oh, you're so welcome. And folks, as you're listening, I, we thank you for being with us for this. And you'll have those lots of things that we've mentioned during this talk. And, and you'll find them in our notes on the website. So please take time to go there. It will lead you to books. It will lead you to videos. It will lead you to... 
YouTube videos, and we'll be sure and uh, connect you with Robert Jonas. We, we really want to be a resource to you. Thank you for listening today. Until next time.